This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. If Joe Biden is reelected in 2024, he'll be 86 by the time his second term as president ends. Chief saying he will run for re-election so long as he's in good health. The Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, is 82. The House Majority Leader, Steny Hoyer, is 83. Meanwhile, the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, is a spring chicken in comparison at only 71 years old. In total, six senators on the left, four Democrats and two independents who caucus with them, are over 75. If any of them leaves the Senate before November, for whatever reason, the Democrats could lose control of the chamber and doom President Biden's chances at accomplishing major policy agenda items this year. This week, we look at the gerontocracy in the U.S., and we consider some of the efforts to bring younger voices into America's government. I'm Joan E. Grieve, Guardian reporter based in Washington, D.C. I'm in for Jonathan Friedland, and this is Politics Weekly America. Amanda Littman is the co-founder and co-executive director of Run for Something, which helps young first-time candidates run for elective office. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Thank you for having me. So, Amanda, to give some background for our listeners, the U.S. Congress runs mostly on seniority. Members of the Senate and House of Representatives who have served the longest are granted some special privileges, including the chance to chair influential committees and run for leadership posts. The seniority model was historically seen as a nonpartisan way to conduct congressional business as opposed to patronage, cronyism or favoritism. And while the Republican leadership in the House and Senate have introduced some term limits for committee chair and ranking member positions to limit the effect of seniority status, congressional Democrats have been hesitant to make those same changes. So, Amanda, you've talked before about how this conversation around America's aging politicians is hard to have in public. But why do you think this issue matters so much? Well, I think we see the impact of uh, youth underrepresentation, both in politics and in policy. It directly affects the outcomes we get, especially from Congress, but more broadly from governors and state legislatures and the president, when they are not reflective of the people they're serving. Now, the median American is 38. The average age in the House is 58. The average age in the Senate is 63. Fewer than 5% of state legislators are under the age of 35. This just isn't where the American people are. And the generational differences directly determine what these people are prioritizing, the kind of lived experience they bring to governing helps shape the way that they actually govern. 
So when we look at the outcomes we're getting from government, there's a reason it feels like these people are mostly out of touch. They are. And in your mind, why do you think some of these politicians are so hesitant to give up office? Do you think it's as simple as power and status? Or do you think that they're worried about the uh, politics of giving opportunities to their opponents if they step aside? I think it's a little bit of both. It's once you've won power and you've had it for a while and, you know, you've, you've learned how to use it, or at least you think you've learned how to use it, you don't want to give it up. Being a member of Congress is awesome. And there's certainly political ramifications here, like to give up the power of incumbency and allow a, a new candidate or a new politician to try and challenge it. Always leave open the door that the opposition can come in and flip the seat. But I think more often than not, it's a leader who finally is, is at the position they have always felt they deserved, and it is theirs, and they want to hold on to it for as long as they can. And Waleed Shahid, who's a strategist for the progressive group Justice Democrats, has talked about this issue before. He once said, quote, I don't inherently have a problem with a politician's age. The issue is that the Democratic Party's narrow control of the federal government could be upended by illness or death at any moment. So, Amanda, do you think that the potential for political instability is one of the biggest issues when we have this conversation around gerontocracy? I think it's certainly one of the issues you have to keep in mind. Like, it is a problem, especially in the United States Senate, which is currently 50-50 with Vice President Kamala Harris as the tiebreaker. It's an issue that if a senator breaks a hip or has a stroke or, you know, just comes down with COVID, um, which is a certainly a higher risk illness for people who are a little bit older, that they'll miss voting, they'll miss presence, they'll miss legislation. All of that affects, again, the actual governing. And I don't think it's necessarily the biggest issue, um, but it's part of the conversation. And of course, it's worth noting that Younger elected officials, people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, even 50s, also can run into health issues and things that keep them from being present. But I do think especially when control of a chamber is on a razor thin line, we should do everything we can to to mitigate those. And we've seen before that when older members of Congress stay in office, it can sometimes lead to a power vacuum. That actually recently happened in South Florida when Democratic Congressman Elsie Hastings died in office last year at the age of 84. Right now, a Florida lawmaker who fought in the trenches during civil rights and went on to become a federal judge has died. Elsie Hastings was diagnosed with stage four. His seat was deliberately kept unoccupied by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis for nine months. And at the time, Florida State Senator Chevron Jones, a Democrat who lives in Hastings District, said, quote, the older generation does not want to pass the baton. You don't have to die in your seat. Pass the baton on. Do you feel like there is a sense of hesitation among America's political leaders of one or both parties to pass the torch on to younger lawmakers? Do you think that there is a sense of hesitation to do so, whether because of a fear of a lack of experience or, as you said earlier, just not wanting to give up, relinquish that power? I think we see this a lot, especially in blue states or blue communities. I speak only from the Democratic perspective, but in places where the seat is safe where if, if there is an election, it will likely be held by the person who wins the Democratic primary. Older leaders have had to work through the machine. They've had to climb the ranks. They've had to earn it. So why would you give it up so easily? Now, I think this is actually a really big problem because those are the places where we want the youngest, newest, freshest, most diverse leadership to come from, in part because once they win the primary, they really get a chance to take power. And you know, we've seen this in New York, run for something the organization I work with worked with upwards of, I think, 16 New York City council candidates who ultimately won 
almost all of them people of color, young queer leaders, young women, all of whom are under the age of 40, who now make up the bench of talent for the future. And when they think about the future ahead of them in New York City or state politics, you know, there's a certain barrier to entry into the upper echelons because there are folks there who will hold their seats for decades. You know, the thing that really pisses me off here and that I often <laughs> find myself yelling at my dog about is we talk a big game about the young people will save us. You know, you see Gen Z activists uh, marching out of schools to uh, protest gun violence. You see them showing up at marches about abortion access. We say over and over again, the kids are our right. The young people will save us. The youth are at the gates. But we don't let them. We don't make it easy for them. There is no stepping aside so someone else can lead. If we want the young people to save us, we have to give them the space to do it. Questions after hearing the news of yet another mass shooting in the U.S. It made me frustrated, it made me angry, Thank it also made me much. think, what if I'm next? What if my friends are next? What if my you know, friends in other states are next? And I asked myself, why does this keep happening? Why and when we think about the idea of gerontocracy more broadly, how do you think it negatively affects the quality of government institutions and political oversight? There's been a lot of conversation recently about Senator Dianne Feinstein of California in particular. She turned 89 last month. She's been criticized for her performances in some recent Senate hearings. For example, back in November, she asked Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey the exact same question twice, which forced him to repeat his answer, which he did very kindly. Uh, news articles of information and conversation that gives you an expansion on what's happening with the election. I guess you see my concerns are. But Amanda, do you worry that Americans are ill-served when younger politicians aren't able to advance to positions of power in Congress? Well, some of our senators in particular are not their most mentally acute. They're not quite with it the way they used to be. And that's really hard to see. Um, But for a lot of them, they just have the perspective of coming up in governance at a time when the Republican Party was a good faith operator. They came of age in politics and grew their careers at a time when you could negotiate and pass bipartisan legislation and count on your opposition to maybe disagree about how you're going to accomplish your goals, but not on what the goal was in the first place. But really, since 2008, with the election of President Barack Obama and then the reaction to that, the Republican Party is no longer a good faith operating partner in governance. There's a reason Mitch McConnell said within the first couple months of President Obama's first term, we're going to make President Obama a one-term president. That's our number one goal. That's not a goal of governing for the country. This is not a party that wants to get things done. They want to burn the whole thing down. So Democrats who came of age in the last 14 years understand that you can't see them as partners. And that really changes the way you approach governing, and it changes the way you approach oversight. Um, it changes the way you understand your creative solutions to legislating. And I think it really helps you prioritize doing whatever you can to get things done, even if you don't have a partner on the other side. And when we consider Democrats' handling of Congress, do you worry that the party is undermining its own effectiveness by not giving more leadership roles and opportunities for influential chairmanships to its younger members? Yeah. I mean, I think you you think about the lived experience of a young person in the United States right now. If you're in your late teens, early 20s, even late 20s or early 30s, you are experiencing almost exclusively a period of incredible instability. From the financial crisis of 2008 to really 2012, um, if you graduated college in 2010, like it was tough out there. 
through to trying to buy a house now in the marketplace, to trying to find childcare for your kids or think about elderly care for your parents, this is a lived experience that if you are in your 60s or 70s, you do not share. You do not understand what it's like to have to go on Craigslist to find a group house in a city you can barely find a job in. These are the kinds of issues that if we had more elected leaders who intimately and personally understood what it felt like, they would prioritize. And that doesn't even get into things like climate change, which is a crisis facing all of us, but especially young people, or gun violence, which, you know, you are basically any age after 20 <laughs> or before 20, you, you grew up doing school shooting drills, starting from kindergarten, of learning how to hide under your desk and where the best places to, to cover your, your head <laughs> and your, your spine are in. It is a totally different lived experience. And I really, I think it's important to nuance this. I'm not saying that we should kick all the boomers out of government. No one is saying that. I do think we know, we've seen this from every level of research, from organizations to businesses to uh, scientific research and the like, diverse teams get us better outcomes. Right now, the government is not a diverse team. It is not diverse in race, in class, in gender, in sexual orientation, and especially in generation, which is in and of itself a shortcut that covers the rest of those things and then some. And you've touched on this a fair amount already, but I want us to also look at the policy impact of this trend. Do you think the fact that older politicians hold so much power in our government is stopping progress on important issues for younger voters? What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I think they're undermining their effectiveness. And no small part because young people are their voters. People ages 18 to 30 are almost entirely more progressive. <laughs> they are almost entirely likely, if they're going to vote, to vote for Democrats. Uh, they are more diverse in terms of race. They are more diverse in terms of gender identity and sexual orientation. All of that encourages them to show up and vote blue if they're incentivized to show up in the first place. So if you think about what Congress should be doing right now to encourage that, to give them a reason to, it's at the very least, if you can't pass legislation, get caught trying. I think the votes that the House held on gay marriage and contraception were a really good start. It got Republicans on the record being against these things that not only do a majority of Americans support, but an overwhelming majority of young people support. But it also really showed that there's at least a way to fight. It is a huge issue. If we do not keep young people engaged um, and build on the work that we did in 2018 and 2020, we can lose them, not just now, but for a generation or more. And of course, in theory, voters can elect to replace their aging representatives. But in practice, the incumbent usually wins uh, no matter their age. And the current leaders in Congress don't have much incentives to change the status quo because it benefits them in so many ways. So, Amanda, what do you think is the best way to address the situation? Part of this is just letting young people run unencumbered. Um, run for something works with so many young people who will say, you know, I tried to get on the ballot and the party machine threw me off. They tried to overturn some of my signatures. They prevented access to resources. They kept me out of the political and data infrastructure. They told me, sit down, wait your turn. It's not your time. If we don't even give voters a chance to decide who they want to be represented by, if we don't allow them the option of younger leadership as opposed to an older generation, we are really depriving them of the fundamental premise of democracy, which is you get a choice on who represents you. Um, I think this is something where party operators and incumbents have to put aside ego and put aside self-interest and think 
even a little bit more long-term than we're usually comfortable with. I'm not saying you think about who's going to be president in 20 years and how can we get them to run for city council now, although that's certainly a really valuable way to think about it. But who are we going to wish we had helped three years from now? Let's make sure that they have at least the space to try. And that feels like a perfect segue to talk more about your own work. So back in 2017, on the day of Donald Trump's inauguration, you and your friend Ross Morales Riquetto founded Run for Something, a political action committee aimed at helping young first-time candidates navigate how to seek elective office. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work your organization does? Yeah. So Run for Something recruits and supports young, diverse progressives running for local office. Uh, By young, we mean folks 40 years old and under, Um, By diverse, we're thinking about diversity in race, class, gender, sexual orientation, um, professional background, education level, type of community. Uh, By local office, we exclusively work with people running for the first time for things like city council and school board and library board and water board, one of the more than half a million elected officials that make up the United States government across every level. Um, Since we launched on Trump's inauguration day, as you said, uh, we've identified more than 135,000 young people all across the country. We've endorsed more than 2,000, and we've elected nearly 650 across 48 states, mostly women, mostly people of color, about a quarter LGBTQ+. They are scientists and teachers and nurses and refugees, and they are incredible public servants. And it's been a real joy to help them step up and claim their seat. And looking ahead to the next set of elections in the U.S., have you set any goals yet for the 2022 midterms? Now, we're hoping to have about 700 candidates endorsed on the ballot this year, some of whom may make it through the primary, some of whom won't. Um, Just earlier this week, we added another 66 to that list. So we've got about 580 so far, more to come. And I think one of the things we're really thinking about is where are we fighting, not just about where we want to win power in 2022, but where are we laying the groundwork to win power in 2032? And we are already seeing some amazing people who we've worked with now for years running for higher office. Yadira Caraveo, who's a state rep in Colorado, is running for Congress. Jevin Hodge, who ran for Maricopa County Board of Supervisors in Arizona, running for Congress. And we're seeing this across the country, not just that we are empowering public servants for today, but we're building what the next generation of Democratic leadership really looks like. And of course, one of the big success stories of young progressives running for office would certainly be Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who defeated an incumbent in a 2018 primary to get into Congress. believe these numbers right now, but I do know that every single person here has worked their butt off to change the future of the Bronx and Queens. Amanda, how significant do you think AOC's example has been when it comes to mobilizing young people to run for office themselves and see that this is a real possibility for them to win? I think AOC was such a powerful example that you don't have to have a fancy resume or a ton of educational experience or deep roots in order to win. And she's just one of the many, many, many amazing young people who've run for office and won sort of against the odds over the last five years. Um, one of the coolest things about doing this work is really seeing it compound on itself. My favorite example here is in 2017, Remember Something worked with Delegate Danica Rome in her historic race for Virginia State House. She became the first openly trans state lawmaker in the country. Uh, we got a bunch of press after that election. It's really cool. Uh, we then started hearing from dozens of trans people who said, I never thought someone like me could run for office and win. You helped Danica. Can you help me too? 
That led to people like Brianna Tatone out in Colorado becoming the first trans state lawmaker there, Sarah McBride running for state senate and winning in Delaware, Taylor Small in Vermont, now Zoe Zephyr in Montana. It's the first, and then there's the second, and the third, and the fourth, and all of a sudden it's very boring, which is the best place to be. And in addition to congressional and state legislative races, I know that you also advise people to run for local offices like school boards and library boards. Amanda, why are those races in particular so important to your organization? Well, we think about this in terms of both politics and policy. Let's start with policy. The lower on the ballot, the closer to your door. City councils and school boards and library boards and state legislatures are making decisions about everything from the quality of the roads we drive on to how clean the water we drink is, to how easy or hard it is to access reproductive health care or gender-affirming care. They're making decisions on criminal justice issues, on drug policy. Basically, everything that isn't foreign policy gets deferred down to the states and often down to the cities or counties. Even school boards are making decisions about curriculum and textbooks. Library boards are deciding what kind of books are available, especially for young people, to be able to access. So it really, really, really matters who's running for and winning these positions, especially right now when we are seeing some far-right extremists, QAnoners, Oath Keepers, and the like win these offices and then use that power to normalize some really dangerous far-right extremist issues. The politics side, you know, this is how you build a bench. Most people who run for Congress and most people who run for governor and lieutenant governor are not AOC. They're people with long resumes and a lot of experience in politics and in public service. So as we think about building a really diverse, exciting bench of talent, the best way to get better governors and better presidents one day is to get better city council members and school board members and state legislators now. And as you know, young voters in the U.S. are expressing real dissatisfaction with the current state of their government right now. A recent survey from The New York Times and Siena College found that only 1% of 18 to 29-year-olds strongly approve of how President Biden is handling his job. Perhaps even more worrisome for Biden, 94% of Democrats under 30 said in that poll that they actually wanted a different member of their party to run for president two years from now. When it comes to the midterm elections this November, only 32 percent of young voters said they're almost certain to vote and almost half said they didn't think their vote made a difference. Amanda, considering how important young voters were for Democrats wins in 2020, do you feel like their dissatisfaction now is a major problem for the party? One hundred percent. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. Young people are our party's base. We have to give them a reason to show up and then give them a reason to vote for us. I think the biggest danger, not necessarily that they're going to vote Republican, although there is some evidence, especially with young men, especially young white men, although young men of color as well, have some inclination towards voting Republican if we don't give them an incentive to do otherwise. But the bigger danger here is that they're going to say, I engaged before, I showed up, I gave you my vote, <laughs> I like put in the time, and what did I get for it? My rent is still really high. I still have a ton of college debt. I can't access the health care I need. Where are the goods? So as we think about what we need to do to keep these people engaged, it's deliver on the issues they care about, or at the very least, prove that we're willing to fight for it. So what do you think Democratic Party leaders need to do between now and November to energize young voters and convince them to show up at the polls? we got to give them messengers they can trust. And I think this is something we often lose as part of the conversation. It is not enough to have a message. Um, to think about what we're going to say. It matters who is doing the saying. You know, think about if Joe Biden says, I want to forgive student debt, and AFC says, I want to forgive student debt, 
the trust and brand and relationship that voters, especially young people, have with those two people, even if they're saying the same exact words, is wildly different. So as we think about what the party needs to do moving forward, yes, it's governing. We have to deliver on the issues young people care about. But it's also empower the messengers who can speak to young people in a way they understand authentically and genuinely and personally on the platforms where they are. And that's something that younger leaders have a little bit more fluency and, and comfort doing. Amanda Lippman, co-founder and co-executive director of Run for Something. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast this week. Thank you for having me. And that's all for me this week. Thank you again to Amanda Lippman for joining me for a great conversation. Make sure to listen to this week's episode of Politics Weekly UK with Raphael Baer sitting in for John Harris. Raphael is looking at how the two main contenders in the Tory leadership race have fared in the TV debates. And as we see the latest round of train strikes, he asks where the public stands on the issue of nationalization. England is in the final of the Women's Euros, which takes place this Sunday at Wembley. To celebrate our new series, The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly, we'll be doing a bonus finals preview episode on Friday. And they'll be recording straight after the final on Sunday night where host Faye Carruthers will be joined by Susie Rack, Johnny Liu, and Robin Cowan to discuss the final result. Will England win? And regardless, what does it all mean for the future of the women's game? Make sure to search, subscribe, and listen to The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly, wherever you get your podcasts. This week's producer was Ian Chambers. The executive producer was Max Anderson. I'm Joan E. Grieve. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.